Well, if you have a Bible, I would ask you to please to turn to 1 Peter in the New Testament, page 857 in the Church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. And while you're turning there, at the end of our time together, if you have any questions about Jesus, His resurrection, the Bible, or what you've heard this morning, I would count it a great privilege to try to answer those questions for you. So in just a second or two, I'm going to begin reading from verse 3 of 1 Peter. And I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. I just, everyone who's had a hand in serving on this Easter Sunday, just a tremendous thank you. So many people make all this possible. And it just, as I was worshiping, I was thanking God for things and, and I was thanking God for them. So thank you. Okay, verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth and to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and unto an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proven genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. If you would, please, let's bow together as we seek the help that we need on this Easter morning. Our only hope is in you, Jesus. Our only hope is in you from early in the morning to late at night and until our last breath. Our only hope is in you. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you that you are with us now as we study your word, the Bible, this Easter morning. We need, as you know, Father, your help in everything, and certainly no less on an occasion like this, which means absolutely everything to those of us in Christ. And so please help us now in ways that you know best. Come in power in order that much will be made of you and what is of necessity to be said about you and ways that will glorify you and extend your kingdom and bring those spiritually dead to a living faith in Christ or to awaken the sleepy Christian in their faith. And since Jesus is alive and he's king, and since Jesus is our only hope in life and death, we ask all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I have a brother who has an affinity for meeting famous people. He absolutely loves it, and frankly, he's quite good at it. In fact, to be honest with you, he is disturbingly good at it. He has met actors, and he has met actresses, and he's met more actresses, and he's met even more actresses. But, so you've met him, huh? He's, he's met television, news people, politicians, and so on. But I think one of the most interesting people he has met thus far would have been the late John Wooden. And if you know anything about college basketball, 
you'll know the name and you'll know that he was a celebrated player and coach, of course. And Coach Wooden was such a kind and patient person that my brother was able to sit down with him and ask him a few questions about life and what made him tick and how things unfold for him and so on. And what became quite clear to my brother was that Mr. Wooden was a man that was all about the basics of things. I mean, everything he said was about the basics of life. In fact, it's been recorded many times that whenever he brought in the freshman class to UCLA and was holding their very first practice session, the first talk that he gave them was, was a talk always about how they were to properly put on their socks. Now, now, loved ones, that is very basic. Vince Lombardi, along the same lines, when he began his first practice every new football season, he began it with a legendary line, gentlemen, this is a football. And again, you can't get much more basic than that. Therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a leaf from their book this Easter morning and be as basic as possible from the Bible, and especially 1 Peter, about the things that matter most and that the, about the things that will matter forever. So we want to be very, very clear. First of all, this, this is a Bible. And the things from the Bible will matter forever for every one of us here this morning. And if what the expert tell, tells us is true, then, then many of us are not that good with our Bibles. Some of us think that the epistles are actually the apostles' wives. Thank you. And that Joan of Arc was the co-captain of Noah's Ark, and they still can't figure out why she wasn't in the movie. And so I don't say those things to make you feel bad, but just to be honest and to be alarmed and to see the necessity quite frankly, of a place like this with an open Bible week by week. So again, we say, this is a Bible. Christians here believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that through it God speaks to us, that it is supreme and sufficient in matters of faith and the practice of that faith, that it is clear, it is very clear in the main things, that it's not a collection of stories that make us feel better, a la Chicken Soup for the Soul, a lovely book, and it's not a book to help us get ahead in life, a la uh, The Art of War, which is, is kind of a weird book. But anyway, the Bible is an alive book about Jesus Christ. Therefore, when the Bible is preached or when it's studied correctly, it's all about Him. It's about the true story that history verifies that you will not find in any other religion, you will not find it in any other ideology or ism anywhere in the whole world. Because the Bible is the true story of free forgiveness and of new life granted to those who have done nothing to deserve it and those who could not in a thousand lifetimes do enough to achieve it. And so what we're going to do this morning is to see how the Apostle Peter and other places in the Bible capture the basic essence of our living hope. In fact, if you received a worship folder, if you turn to the back, you'll see that's the title of it. And there's some points to guide us through the talk. Ours is a living hope, which is, of course is Jesus. So first of all, then, some basic questions to be answered. That's going to begin in verse 3. Some basic questions to be answered. Verse 3, if your Bible is open, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth and to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, if you read that and you're agnostic or you're a skeptic, then immediately a, a, few, a few questions should spring out of this specifically and from the whole Easter story uh, generally. So, for example, who is Jesus? 
What does it mean that, that he is Lord Jesus Christ? Why did Jesus have to die? In fact, why did he have to suffer when he died? Why did he die on a cross? You know, was that just theater? Was that something so that Christians would have some piece of jewelry to wear around their neck? Why was he buried? And what is all this stuff about God's mercy and new birth, living hope through Christ's resurrection? Well, let's try to answer those questions from the Bible. First of all, then, who is Jesus? Well, it's too easy to say that he's a great thinker or he's a great philosopher or just a super moral man or, or someone who can make life much better for us now because actually Jesus went around saying that he was the Messiah, that he was the only Savior that could save the world and that he was God and, and frankly that things would get difficult at times for his own children because of him. So Jesus constantly was talking about himself in such a way that for some made them glad and for others, frankly, made them mad. So for example, John eight fifty eight, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. And the Jewish people hostile to his words were ready to stone Jesus. Why were they going to stone Jesus? Well, he was saying that he was Yahweh, that he was God. And in their minds, he was blaspheming. There was a woman who Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, Luke chapter 7. So she was glad about that, but the people at the party were mad about that. And Jesus also said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because the Father and I are one. Again, claiming to be God. So, when you think about this, to receive Jesus is to receive God. To love Jesus is to love God. To hate Jesus is to hate God. And to ignore and, and reject Jesus is to ignore and reject God. And that's why from the human side of the Easter story, he was crucified. He was crucified because the powers that be could not stand his declaration as God. So Bono from the band U2 in a recent interview said this, Either Jesus was the Son of God, or he was, and right there during the interview, the interviewee said to him, he, he was not, and Bono says, no, he was nuts. I mean, Charlie Manson type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that of all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years have been touched, felt their lives touched by such a nutter. And he says, I don't believe it. He says, Jesus is divine. And Jesus did rise from the dead. And I pray to him as God. Okay, so that's Bible and that's Bono. Who is Jesus? He's God. Okay, what does it mean that he's Lord? Well, this means as God, Jesus is to be worshipped. And he has the, the right and the might to tell us how to live now. To tell us how we may find forgiveness, avoid hell, enter heaven, and have peace with God. Thank God forever beginning right now. So you see, it's no wonder that the early Christians all worshipped Jesus week by week and Christians since then have been doing the same thing. If, if you think about it, to study Jesus and to worship Jesus because of what Jesus has given us, it's actually a no-brainer. Okay, then why did Jesus have to die? Well, part of the reason we said was that men hated his proclamation of his divinity and they misunderstood his ministry. But the chief reason is a wonderful reason. And the Bible gives it as straightforward. Three words in Greek, five words in the English. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ died for our sins. That's it. He was put to death for our sins. That's Romans 4, 25. And you see, what the Bible teaches is this. That the justice of God needed to be satisfied. God is holy. And not a speck of sin will survive, nor may it be in His presence. 
Therefore, the love of God puts himself forward in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so God's justice can be satisfied and we might be saved from God's penalty on our sin. And the plan of God was that under the hands of cruel men, Jesus would die. So justice of God, sin must be punished because it matters how I treat you, how you treat me, how we treat the world, and how everyone treats God. Love of God, I will take the punishment due humanity for no one else is qualified to do so, only Jesus. Plan of God, under the hands of cruel men, my salvation plan for my people will unfold. And of course it did. And since there's no perfect person among us, And since sin harms everything, and since God condones nothing but judges all sin, all sin as it deserves, I mean, he said it in the beginning of the Bible, right? All sin deserves death. Well, what is death? Well, death ultimately is an alive separation from God for all eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. And the Bible confirms this. And frankly, our own conscience should confirm this on some level. So we read it in the catechism, what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. That's sin. That's me. I did that. And frankly, I do that. And since this is true for all humanity, and God is loving, but God is just, Christ died for sin. Okay, then, but why did Jesus have to suffer when he died? I mean, I suspect all of us here, we would like to probably die in our sleep, right? As most of us, he said, how would you like to go? I would like to go in our sleep. If you ask me how would I like to go, I'd like to finish my last sermon, whenever that may be, say amen and just collapse right behind here. Just that, that'd be it. You know, people would go and you guys go off and come back a week later and ah, there I am. You know, and you'd go and say, I see, I told you he was lazy all week long. He's been sleeping behind the pulpit. That's the way I'd like to go. Okay, so why did Jesus have to suffer when he died? Well, during the entire life of Jesus, but especially at the end, he was suffering in his whole body from the effects of sin on a fallen world. Which is why, for example, God in Jesus grew old. I mean, just imagine that. And he was tempted. Just imagine that. And he was tired. Just imagine that. Nevertheless, he was winning for us all that we needed and he was paying for us the full effects of a sinful world in his body. Because we know that the world that we have, it is not the way the world God made it. And sin has ruined everything. Sin is the dark force behind all our blank misgivings, behind all our lust and selfish decisions. And we see the effect of sin in our world every day. I mean, you can't even read the headlines anymore without just being crippled by the amount of horror in our world. And all those effects were placed on Jesus every day he walked this earth, but especially the last day. Therefore, in the sufferings of Christ, in his life on the cross, his, his death on the cross, was not theater. It was, it was a reality and it was of absolute necessity. Because Christ's suffering and death on the cross was frankly a picture of what hell will be like. The cross is the one earthly picture which God determined to give us so that we might see what the real penalty of sin is and how God determined the outcome of that penalty on our sin. So, so the cross is this horrible, but it's wonderful. For those who are saved from this reality in Christ, the cross is wonderful. We know what we are. 
for those who reject Jesus Christ, then the cross is horrible. Therefore, the sufferings of Jesus Christ, Christ and his death is the only atoning sacrifice. The, the fancy word is propitiation, which means the satisfying of God's justice by the suffering and death of Christ. And so Christ, by his suffering, rescues our bodies, rescues our souls from eternal punishment, rightly due our sin. Okay, so are you with me? Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. What does it mean that he's the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it means that he's king. Why did Jesus have to die? Sin. Why did he suffer when he died? It's God's penalty on sin, and it's a picture that God has given us of hell. Okay, so then why did he die on the cross? Again, was that just theater? No, it was actually theology. And this is one of the most striking things about the Bible. The Bible, you know, written over a 6,000-year period by 40-plus authors, but it all is in perfect harmony. So every well-taught Jew knew that Deuteronomy 21, 23 said this, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. And Paul was a Jew himself. He affirmed this in the New Testament letter to the Galatians when he said, cursed is anyone who is hanged or hung on a tree. And Peter said about Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree. In other words, Jesus became a curse for the Christian on the cross so that we would not have to be under God's right wrath on our sin. In other words, cursed. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us on the cross as he died. Okay, then why was he buried? Two reasons. Two main reasons. One, to bear witness that he really did die. So, so there was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who, who asked for the dead body of Jesus, John 19.38. And Pilate gave the permission. In other words, Pilate said, he certified dead. In fact, if you read John 19, Pilate was surprised how quickly Jesus did die. And so these two kind men put approximately uh, 70 five pounds of embalming material on the dead body of Jesus, which was the Jewish custom of their day performed not on alive people, but on dead people. So one reason that Christ was buried was by way of normal Jewish custom on dead people. The other by way of essential biblical doctrine. The wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. And at the cross we see the whole amount of sin in this world placed on Christ as he died. And then later on, Jesus says in Revelation 1.18, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. So this whole death thing was no hoax. It actually happened. It had to happen. Each one of us needs this to happen. So that's our first point. Some questions that need to be answered. And if you had to put our first point in a song... I could find no better song this week than Cross of Jesus by Francis O'Brien. Listen to a couple of verses. Cross of Jesus, cross of sorrow, where the blood of Christ was shed. Perfect man on thee did suffer. Perfect God on thee has bled. Here the king of all the ages, thronged in light before worlds could be, robed in mortal flesh, is dying, crucified by sin for me. Some questions that need to be answered. So secondly then, there's a hope that needs to be understood. 
And so what the Bible is prepared to say, and especially in 1 Peter 3, is that all of us need this living hope. All of us, unless you're, of course, uh, the former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, who was quoted in this past Tuesday's edition of the New York Times as saying, as he was thinking about his mortality, this is what he said. I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. You know, you want to say, holy cow, you know, what's going on there? So, so as of right now, Michael Bloomberg, he, he thinks he's good enough to get in heaven. So the hope he has for heaven, if there is, quote, even a God, is a hope that is all about him and not in Christ. You know, I was thinking, I, I, bet, I bet you he takes lots of selfies. I mean, how could you not... If you, if you thought that way, right? He might even write a book, How to Get to Heaven, If There is a God, you know? So what is all this stuff in verse 3 about God's great mercy, new birth, living hope, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Well, it's a hope that has to be understood. So what we're going to do is let's take a moment and first let's think about the writer who's writing this, Peter. Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus and an eyewitness to the resurrection. Peter, the other disciples, and 500 plus people saw the risen Christ. This is the same Peter who, before the resurrection and frankly before the crucifixion, had pinned his hope on a Jesus who would only be an earthly king and an earthly kingdom, and Peter was going to get one of the best and brightest spots. So Peter's hope was a selfish one. And therefore, that hope was crushed as all selfish hopes eventually are. Consequently, when Jesus dies, Peter's selfish hope dies as well. And I suspect we understand this. When we, are, when we pin our hope on something that doesn't happen for us, we are let down. Because nobody can live without hope. As soon as hope goes, our bodies uh, and minds just essentially shut down. Psychiatrists deal with this all the time. When, when hope is finally removed from a cancer diagnosis, it's amazing how quickly some slip away. But as long as hope remains, we, we find that many fight on. But without hope, a deep, dark shadow falls over all our achievements, over all our enjoyments, and all our ambitions. And that was Peter. Jesus is dead. Okay, no hope. Okay, quick. I'll go back to fishing. New hope. Peter's type A personality. I need to find something quick to hope in. And if you're thinking, that is very, very contemporary. A, a person needs something to live for. Check. We try something. It gives us a bit of hope. It, as all earthly things do, will either be taken away or eventually leave us wanting. It doesn't do what we thought it would. And we try something new until we can no longer do anything and we live out the remainder of our days in a chair in a bad mood hopeless, which frankly to me is why it's so difficult to live in contemporary America because there's all these temporary hopes that, that are always being offered to us which are so distracting but admittedly kind of appealing. So Peter needs to understand true living hope and of course he did. He saw the risen Christ and Christ had to, if you would, re-explain to Peter and to all the disciples in fact, Luke 24 says that he had to open up their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And when Jesus do, did that, they understood what his suffering actually meant. They understood what his death meant and what the resurrection meant. 
And so they were told by Jesus to, to live it out and tell it. Tell, tell the true story about me who died for sin but is now alive, will soon return as a judge of the living and the dead, and who will make all things new. So then as Peter writes, he's, he's not referring to like fond hopes. You know, I hope it doesn't snow tomorrow. Like fat chance here, right? I hope that the stock market will recover. I hope that I make it to retirement. So this is not a hope clinging to potential possibility. That was the old Peter. But the new Peter is referring to a joyful, confident expectation and all the promises of God because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is where Peter's hope is. That is where the Christian hope is. So this hope, if you would, is enters us into a reality which is based on a past act, the resurrection of Jesus, which changes our present world and helps us to look to the future, not with dread, but with absolute confidence. I mean, it doesn't come as any surprise to us that most of the times in movies or books when people write about their future, it's not like some wonderful future. Most of the time, it's like, you know, people with six heads coming after us and all that kind of stuff of a horror. Why? There's no hope. So Peter writes, we, and we need to understand, the Christian hope is based on a past reality. So this hope is nothing, nothing that we kind of have to you know, uh, hype ourselves up for. It's not a flimsy hope. It's not a subjective, a mysterious hope. It's not a hope that sways when circumstances sway. No, no. Verse 3, do you see it there if your Bible's open? In God's great mercy, he's given us new birth and to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that means there are two foundational elements of the Christian hope. One, the mercy or the grace of God, which has nothing to do with our achievements or our attainments. That's the new birth. And two, the verifiable reality, the, the historicity, anchored based conviction that Jesus Christ has risen. He's risen indeed. That's the living hope. So if you're a Christian, then you've been removed from the realm of hopelessness, which is one of the distinctive features of a Christian. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says it like this, you were once without God and without hope in the world, but now you're in Christ. You have hope. So the Christian is not someone who has hope because, you know, things are strong in our financials or things are great with our bodies or things are great because of the vehicles or we're fantastic in our careers or our children, our grandchildren are terrific or we have an uncle somewhere who promised us that when he dies, we get to have all his stuff. No, because verse 4, ours is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Now, I know you know this, but it needs to be said, all earthly things will eventually be taken away from us. So if our hope is dependent on these things, when we no longer have them, or if we never had them, or when we're done with them, in other words, death, then where is the hope? Where is the living hope? Where is it? And Peter writes and says, the Christian's living hope is only in Christ's resurrection and certainly not in stuff and situations. But, nor can our hope be in us trying to be a little better as well. I mean, lots of people try to be a little better. And if our acceptance with God is based on trying to be a little better person, then frankly, I'm in big trouble. 
But thank God that our relationship with God, the Christian's relationship with God, is based on God's grace and God's mercy. That's why Peter said in verse 3, praise God for his mercy. He's given us new birth. Because many people think if there is a God and he's paying attention at all, then, then if he's good at all, he's going to reward nice people for doing their best. And you want to say to them, that's Bloomberg. That's not the Bible. The Bible says, grace says that when you're a stinker and by grace you fess up to it and cry out to Jesus Christ, you are accepted on the basis of God's grace alone in Jesus. And you see, that is Peter's living hope. And so when Peter speaks of this hope, this kind of hope is not in a person deciding finally that they want to get better. And it's not an immoral person turning over a new leaf or, frankly, a secular person finally deciding to get, quote, spirituality. Because all of that can be done by human endeavor. But this is not that. For Christianity cannot be done by human endeavor. If Christianity could be done by human endeavor, then verse 3 would read, well, then praise yourself for your new birth. You see, what Peter is describing here is something done by God in us and not done by us for God. And that's why Peter says, verse 3, in God's mercy, he's given us a new birth. A new birth. You mean like born again? Absolutely. You mean like Nicodemus born again? Absolutely. You mean you read those stories in the Gospels, the rich young ruler. He asked Jesus the question, you know, how can I inherit eternal life? And then there's an intellectual Jewish man and he asked Jesus the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then there's this religious man, Nicodemus. Oh, what do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, give up everything and, and tells the Jew, Jewish man about the story of the good Samaritan. Hate, love your enemies who you hate forever. And then he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And the point of those stories is not so that we can try to be that way so that we can be saved. That's impossible. The point of those stories is to point us and put us in a corner and say, you know you can't do that. Be honest and cry out for mercy and mercy will come. And that's why we sing the song around here. I stand in Christ with sins forgiven and Christ in me, the hope of heaven. So that's what Peter is saying. It is only because of what took place on Good Friday and it is only because what is achieved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday, that is the only reason for the Christian to have a living hope because the Christian's confidence is all placed in Jesus. Yes, you know, but the lady on TV, she said that if I try a little harder and study the Bible a little better, then Jesus will make me wealthier and happier and make me fit as a fiddle and I'll have such a good time. Well, loved ones, please consider turning that silly lady off because ours is a living hope only because Jesus is alive and nothing more. And the Christian that Peter's, or Peter is writing to they're living on the knife's edge because of their faith in Christ. So you want to say, turn that lady or that man off who feeds you that twaddle. It is only the past resurrection that gives us hope. Our present is thereby changed by this hope as the Christian is someone who has been united with Jesus both in his death and his resurrection, which means that the Christian is no longer the person that they once were. And I, told, I was told this week of a great story, a true story, that affirms this. 
There was a gentleman in the hospital suffering from brain cancer. He's a Christian, and the treatments that he was receiving in the hospital were just absolutely daunting. But his hope was in Christ. His hope was in Christ who is alive, and people took note of that. He wasn't a humpty grumpty in his hospital bed, and he had this just wonderful way about him. In fact, he had a wonderful way about him that one of the nurses on duty, seeing him, who wasn't a Christian, wrote this in his, his chart. This is what he says. In fact, Hurst, she says, it's a critical comment. She says, Mr. X, this morning, is inappropriately joyful. You bet he is. You bet he is. What is his only hope in life and in death? The risen Christ. And our future, verse 5, is shielded by God's power through faith in Jesus Christ until the full extent of our salvation is, is revealed. In other words, it's a, it's a perfect line from a hymn. All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask besides? Can I doubt His tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, hereby faith in Him to dwell. For I know whatever befalls me, the risen Jesus Christ does everything, does everything well. So there were some questions that needed to be answered. There was a hope that needs to be understood. And finally, a decision that needs to be made. You see, loved ones, all that Jesus has accomplished for us is of no value to us as long as we remain outside of Christ. And here then is the essence of it. Genuine Christian faith, which brings us into a living hope, is found in Christ alone. He's the only Savior, for He's the only one qualified to save. No one else has risen from the dead. No one else has made atonement for our sins. So genuine faith is in Christ alone. It's by grace alone. We don't deserve it and could never achieve it. And it is through faith alone. And please don't think for a moment that faith is a, is a work that replaces our endeavor. So, so God looks upon us and says, well, he had faith or she had faith, so I'll reward him for his faith. This is nothing like that. R.C. Sproul explaining this good. He says, I am not saved so that I may be born again. I am born again so that I may be saved. The Puritans would write it like this perfectly. God justifies the believer not because of the worthiness of his belief, but because of the worthiness of the one in whom he believes. In other words, we are put right with God, not because we manage to believe, because the Bible is prepared to tell us that's a grace in itself. So we're put right with God, not because we manage to believe, but because of who we believe in. This is the mustard seed faith. So the real question, this whole religion issue is this. Do we need to go up to God to get right? Or does God need to come down to us and make us right? Now just before I answer that, what does your own conscience tell you? So there's a religious person realizing that whatever else they may be, they are not what they should be. They understand there's this huge gap between what I am and who God is. Therefore, the religious person says, I must go up to God. So whether it's mysticism or moralism or selfism or asceticism or philanthropy, I will do my best to close the gap. But there's no life in that and certainly there's no hope in that. And many people's lives are engaged in this pursuit in a way that makes as much sense as it can for their existence. But it doesn't answer the deepest questions and it doesn't meet their deepest need. But if a person would read their New Testament, if a person would listen to the gospel declared, 
they would discover an actual fact. Christianity is not the story of us going up to God, but thank God. Christianity is the story of God coming down to us. It's the story of a God who comes down in our time. It's a story of a God who indwells our humanity, a God who dies in our place, a God who is raised for our justification, a sovereign God who rules over the affairs of this world and will bring history to a close in his own good time. What then is faith in Christ? Faith in Christ is nothing more than the empty hand of a man or a woman or a young person reaching out to the initiative-taking grace of God and they accept the free offer of mercy and His kindness, the gift of forgiveness. Oh, thank God for that. And the gift of hope and a future and a whole new family. That is faith in Christ. So I say to you this Easter Sunday, we are not put right with God because we are good, but we will start to be good when we are put right with God, by God, in faith, in Jesus Christ, because of his mighty resurrection from the grave. And dear friends, I only have one word of warning. If you set your heart against God this morning, don't assume that you will automatically have another morning to open your heart to Him. In 18 years of pastoral ministry has taught me at least this. The longer that one hears the gospel and rejects it or puts it off for another time, the harder it will become to say yes for the very first time. Which is why the Bible always speaks in the present tense when offering salvation. Now is the day. Now, April 20th, 2014, is the day of salvation. Now is the day to say yes to Jesus Christ before the day comes when it will be too late. And no one knows when that will be. So Jesus Christ offers himself to you this morning. And he offers himself to you. And he says it so kindly. Come to me. Believe. I love you. Come to me. Be honest. Repent. I love you. I love you. Why is this all true? Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together. Our gracious God, we know that our only hope in life and in death is this, that we are not our own and that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to you our, and our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered and died in our place at Calvary's cross, bore our sin, and is alive as the risen, ascended King. And we thank you, Jesus, for your promise because you're not a man that you should lie, that you will return for your people. And we anticipate that day with great joy. Now, Father, it is our great hope that you would make every one of us in here this morning alive in Christ so that we might be part of your forever family and live with the privileges of a living hope on this earth until our last day. And then see that reality that just inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, the safest place it could be. And we will enjoy that your company and your presence and your people forever. So may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be on all who believe this morning and every morning 
until you call us home or until Christ returns. Thank you, Father, for your kindness to us today. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.